Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at myhomechurch.org. I'm really grateful for just the different voices and that serve in this community and in this house and to have Johnny and, and Caesar. Weren't they just such a blessing, like breaking open the gospel? Just honor them and their giftings, and it's really amazing uh, just to be able to sit and receive myself. And but I am excited to be uh, back up here. I, sometimes when you get when you used to go in like every week and you get a few weeks, I feel like over over prepared. Uh, it's like oh my goodness, no. So just spaces. Uh, we'll break it open over the next few weeks. But um, we've been. Uh, if you haven't been here, we've been really just felt. We just felt called by the Lord to to hone in on the simple gospel. And I think one of the things that can happen. As a, as a believer and as a Christian is we can feel like that, that, that we grow past the gospel, that the gospel was something we received once when we were lost and broken, uh, but now we're maturing past it. But what we've been looking at scripturally, uh, you see it all throughout Paul's letters, is that he calls us not just to receive the gospel, but to stand in it. The same gospel we received is the same gospel that we're standing in. And, and that's so important because it's really easy as we're growing and maturing and seeing fruit from our lives, which is beautiful and should happen, uh, we can easily start to confuse that fruit and that transformation as the gospel itself. Uh, but you're standing on sure ground when we talk about the blood of Jesus. <laughs> you're on sure ground. And, uh, and over the next few weeks, we're still going to touch on a lot of beautiful things. There's so many amazing facets and blessings to the gospel. I hope you're ready for that. We're going to look at a lot of different ways the scriptures talk about what Jesus has done with our sin. And honestly, I feel like each week, it's just going to continue to liberate the condemned heart uh, because that's where you find traction to run after God wholeheartedly is when you really understand what he's done with your sin. So we're going to look at all those facets. But what I felt to do today, uh, the Lord actually kind of stopped me before we go in there, is I really felt led to first take us to a higher perspective, a higher vantage point, if you will, and really see the gospel in its, in its essence. Like, what is it all unto? What is it all for? Before we start looking at, and necessarily so, looking at all the minor components and facets of Jesus and all the things that he has done for us in this gospel message, the question that's ringing in my heart is, what is it really, what is it all pointing to? Where is it all leading? Because as we go over these details over the next few weeks, I don't want us to miss, like, the, the, the painting, the full picture. I want us to be able to step back and see the glory of it all, of what God is doing, amen? So, so for me, the question today is not so much what is the gospel. Here's what's burning in my heart. My question for us is what makes the good news so good? <laughs> what makes the good news so good? Now, I want to be clear about that. When I say that, uh, again, there are, there's a, there's a multitude of blessings. There's the manifold glories that just pour forth from the gospel message that all are beautiful and good. But when I say what makes the good news so good, what I'm really after is what is the, what is the ultimate good? What, what is like the chief good? What is the pinnacle of goodness of the good news? What is it, if there is a, such a thing, that if you pull it out from the good news, that actually everything begins to lose its sweetness? <laughs> as good as the things are, if we do not see where it's ultimately leading it to us, if we pull that thing out, we actually miss and lose what makes everything else such glorious good news. Amen? So what we're after today is we're after that end goal of the gospel because what I have found in my life and others as a preacher is we can, we can, we can share all of the facets but not lead people to where the gospel wants to lead us. And we miss actually on the glorious end point of it. 
All right? So that's what we're after this morning. So let's uh, open up to 1 Peter. Someone's excited. I, I'm, I'm happy. Someone's excited. I got one person. 1 Peter. Now, I'll be honest, in some ways, this answer is very simple, but there's great depth to it. It's something that if you've been in our community before, I know that we've highlighted, but I, I trust that if you just journey with me this morning, um, there will be a, a, a freshness to it. God will take this reality, I think, and by grace, really bring it deep into our soul and to our heart. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 3. We're gonna, this is going to be our starting point. It's going to la- launch us into two other texts. Again, we're after what makes the good news so good. So verse 18 of 1 Peter chapter 3. Here's what it says. One of the great summaries of the gospel. I'm going to start with just reading it halfway through. There's a reason for that. So it says, 1 Peter 3 verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Christ suffered or he died once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Okay, so just stop here. At this point, depending on your translation, I've read 12 words to you. (laughs) But what I would put before you is that in these 12 words, there is a litany of glories that are coming forth. There is a catalog of triumphs. As you actually just set your heart on this, I I just see like a cascade of splendors that burst forth from these 12 words. For in it, it says Christ suffered once for sin or Christ died. And what that reveals to us is that the gospel message tells us that man did not just drift from God. He's not just alienated from God. He actually was in rebellion towards God. And as a result, he was in bondage and under the penalty of sin, which is death itself. But the good news, the glorious news, here's this simple gospel, what Christ has done or what God has accomplished in the Son, is that God did for us what we were incapable of doing for ourselves, which is ultimately that he would come and pay the debt that we had incurred. He would come and die once for all of our sins. And he would rescue each and every one of us from the bondage of sin, but also from the penalty of sin. Forgiveness and freedom being accomplished in the good news. And from this one statement, from these 12 words, again, there is just a flow of of glory. There's justification, which Caesar so powerfully and and clearly communicated. Justification means that our, our sins have been removed. My friends, we're going to go deeper into this, but I want you to know when you trust in the Lord, your sins are removed from you. Sometimes you can feel like your sins are hovering right around you. No, no, they've been removed from you as far as the east is from the west. They are gone. They are gone. You've been justified. Your sins have been removed from you, and if that isn't good enough news, God hasn't just wiped out your debt. He's then put something into your bank account, which is righteousness. He has imputed the righteousness of Christ, which means the perfection of Jesus, which means when the Father looks at you right now, do you know what he sees? The perfection of Christ. 1 John says we are literally walking on the earth as Christ was, in righteousness. With that comes forgiveness of sin. (laughs) You've been forgiven. You've been pardoned. That means the condemned heart is liberated before God. Not only that, uh, but you have been, um, not only have you been forgiven, but you've been given a new heart. (laughs) You've been regenerated, born again of the Holy Spirit. Now that you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're liberated from the power of sin. You can now walk in freedom. The good news is not just that you've been forgiven, but that you have freedom now. Then you've been brought into the spirit of adoption. (laughs) Now the same one who stood as a judge before you, you know what you cry out now? Abba, Father. 
actually, I was thinking about this, how it's so amazing. We all know that we need a Savior because the judgment of God was actually working against us, in a sense, without Jesus. But the moment you get born again, his judgment is now working for you. For it says he is faithful and just to forgive anyone who forgives their sins, who confesses their sins. It's interesting, justice is why we know we need a savior, but once you get saved, now his justice is working for you. Meaning when an accuser comes and says, condemn this, God's now saying, no, he's righteous. It's my son, it's my child. His justice is working for you. <laughs> but listen, all of these things are things that we will go deeper into, but here is still my question is, what is it all for? <laughs> what is it all unto? Why is justification such good news? Why is being forgiven of sins such good news? <laughs> now, I think seldom do we ever ask that question because in many ways these things within themselves are so joyous. <laughs> uh, I mean, the idea of having our crimes acquitted, if you will, in the courtroom of heaven and being declared right before a holy God is so manifestly happy, it almost would feel disrespectful to even ask the question, what makes this such good news? But if we do not, what I have found again is that we don't let the gospel lead us all the way to where the gospel wants to lead us. So a lot of times what can happen is we say, why is being justified, sins removed, being declared righteous, why is being forgiven such good news? Well, I'm no longer condemned. My heart's not condemned. That is glorious news. <laughs> or we may say, I'm not going to go to hell now. That's glorious news. But do you know if you stop there, you actually have not let the gospel lead you to the ultimate good of the good news? Do you know there's actually something better than just not having a condemned heart or just being forgiven? And there's even something way better than just not going to hell. <laughs> and what Peter is going to invite us into is to, uh, to know here is what makes the good news so good. This is why being justified, declared righteous, forgiven, given the spirit of God a new heart. This is really what makes everything so sweet. Let's read it again, verse 18. He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Are you ready? Here it is. <laughs> that he might bring us to God. <laughs> is that not incredible? <laughs> what makes, what is the ultimate good of the good news? What is the greatest gift of the gospel? It's not just a, it's not just a heart that's been liberated. It's not just forgiveness of sins. It's not just that you're not going to spend eternity away, away from God. The ultimate good of the good news is God himself. Right. If I could put it this way, God is the gospel. In other words, he is the ultimate, chief, final, decisive good. And if we don't let the good news lead us all the way into that, we'll actually miss why it's so sweet that you've been justified and declared righteous. For what Christ has actually done in dying and doing all those things I said is he was kicking out every obstacle, every veil, every hindrance that stood in the way of you being brought back to God. <laughs> He's removed everything for this one final thing that you would be brought back into a relationship with God. If God could give you a greater gift, he would have, for he so loves you with a love that we can't comprehend, which tells us that the greatest gift God can give anyone in this room is himself. <laughs> he said if, if there was something else, he would have given it to you. But he says, here's the greatest gift I can give you, myself. Are you enjoying the gospel? <laughs> Meaning, are you enjoying God? Have you learned to... See and savor the ultimate reward of the gospel, Christ himself. For the Bible says that the ultimate good of the good news is that we have gained Christ and can enjoy him forever. Do you know that this is the ultimate good? 
Paul would say it this way, Philippians 3.8, I count everything rubbish now that I've gained Christ. Have we come to see Jesus as the supreme treasure? <laughs> the ultimate good of the good news is that me and you can stand before God with confidence and enjoy his presence forever. The one who is pleasures forevermore. <laughs> we get to see and savor the glory of God found in the face of Jesus. We were worshiping today. I don't know the exact word was, I long to see your face. I love to see your face. That is so in line with where we're going today. There is no greater news than you and I get to behold God the Father in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the ultimate good. This is the ultimate thing that satisfies your heart. When Mary, when Mary encountered uh, Jesus at the tomb, do you remember she went to cling to him? And he says, do not cling to me for I've yet to go to the Father. I've yet to ascend. In other words, if she cling to him right there, the gospel was not yet complete. For when he ascends, then the Spirit is poured out. God takes residence in man, and now man can walk with God. But oftentimes we cling to a half-finished gospel, which is, yes, you've been forgiven. You need to know that. We've been washed clean of our sins, but it was unto us being able to cling God now. It's us to God making his home in us. Every single day we get to enjoy the gospel. We get to wake up. We get to open our word, and we get to say, Holy Spirit, would you reveal the face of Jesus to me? If we're not doing this, we're missing. We're missing the ultimate good. <laughs> I don't know, that gets me excited. <laughs> and listen, saying this, saying this does not diminish every other aspect of the gospel. All the things I highlight, it does not diminish it. Actually, what it does is it intensifies their beauty. For it shows you the great length that God went to to bring you to himself. That God would plan such a perfect plan before the foundations of the earth to deal with every obstacle that stood in the way. Yes. Wrath, <laughs> uh, 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 condemned heart, whatever it was, God created a perfect plan and dealt with every obstacle in Christ crucified to bring you to him. So as we journey over the next few weeks looking at all of now the facets, I pray you would remember this message and know that because of where it's all going, it actually will intensify the beauty of what he has done in his son. So that's, that's, that's my ache for this morning. My, my ache is this, <laughs> that it's possible, and dare I say even uh, highly plausible, <laughs> that we can, we can affirm the, all the facets of the gospel, we can study them, we can commit them to memory, uh, we can even truly trust in all the facets of the gospel, and yet not let the gospel lead us to where it wants to lead us. It is unto a relationship with the living God. <laughs> the God of the universe revealing himself through this son. I want you to know that Christ, Christ did not just die for sinners in order that we would go on treasuring something else above him. The ultimate thing is that Christ wants to be treasured above all else. In fact, I mean this with the utmost love. But if it's not that everything's perfect, but if we have believed a gospel message that says that I'm forgiven but I treasure so many other things above this Jesus, we have not really encountered the true gospel. For he is the pearl of great price. This is what scripture says. He is everything. And I want, I want us to experience the fullness of the gospel. He's better than any career. He's better than, he's better than our families. As much as I love my wife and my kids, he, he does something for me that they can never do. I give my heart to them because I want to honor Jesus, but he is the greatest gift that I have ever received. He's the true treasure, guys. And God, we're going to go on a little journey so we're going to see that this is the, he's the most precious, he's the most precious thing, most precious person. <laughs>
and we get to enjoy him forever and ever and ever. One other thing before we move into two other texts. I want you to see, I want to read this again. I want to kick out different things, different, um, different goals of the gospel that I think easily come up that replace God. Okay, that's part of my heart. Things that subtly come in. So let's read it again. It says, for Christ also suffered once for sins. And then it gives some commentary on that. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. You could actually simplify this by saying this, for Christ suffered once for sins to bring us to God. Now, I'm going to say something before you, you beat me down. Just listen to through. <laughs> because this, I actually think this is very important. But what it does not say is that Christ suffered once for sins to bring us to heaven. This is very, very, very important. Because oftentimes, without doing something malicious, we present the ultimate good of the good news is a future place. Do you know why heaven's heaven? Because Christ is there. Paul says this, set your mind on things above where Christ is. Why do we set our mind on things above? Because that's where Christ is. You remove Christ from heaven and heaven is no longer heaven. What that does when we start telling that the ultimate goal is to get to a future place rather than to God is we're actually creating a theology that actually allows people to stay in a place where they feel comfortable not walking in the freedom, joy, peace that Christ has died for. Because what we're convinced now is that I haven't gotten to the ultimate place for which Christ has died for me, the ultimate good, which is this future place. No, the ultimate reason why Christ died is to bring you to God, and you have God today, which means you can have joy today, you can have peace today, you can have freedom today. I thank God for the reality of eternal life, but I want you to know is I'm not, that's not why he died. He died so that I could have God. And with God, I have eternal life. But you can have eternal life this morning. You can have joy and peace this morning. It comes through a life surrender than walking with God. This is the ultimate good of the good news. Does that make sense? There's no, there's no greater good. You could even say, listen, this is a real question. Would heaven still be heaven if Christ was not there? And I know the answer is we'd all say no, but think about that. Think about a place where the realities of heaven are operating. You're, you're free of pain, free of sickness. You're with loved ones who've put their faith in Jesus. That's good news. I can't wait to be restored. I can't wait to see grandma. That's good news, right? That, that's, a, that's something, I'm not saying that's not something to be grateful for. You can have all those things, but what I am saying is you take Christ from that and still have all of those truths, it will not be satisfying. Some people actually have a measure of that right now on earth, that's, but they're still miserable because they do not have Jesus. He's, he's, he is what makes heaven heaven. So you don't have to wait to experience life, peace, joy. God has, Jesus has brought us to God right now. <laughs> but there's a difference between union and communion, right? My wife and I are in union. We, there was an actual date where we came into union, but if we don't commune together, I'll never experience the fullness of what was possible in that union. So a lot of times we're convinced it's something else. We're not communing daily with the Lord. Amen? All right. Let's, uh, let's come to Isaiah. So while you're going to Isaiah 40, part of this too is I want this to touch our hearts, obviously, but when we communicate the gospel, I want to be clear we list out all of the blessings. Eternal life is real. Heaven is real. Hell is real. Christ is the way. But we need to make sure that when we present it, that, we, that we're presenting people into the biblical truth that God is the greatest good. So Isaiah 40. 
Now, Isaiah is personally one of my favorite Old Testament books. We know that every book of the Bible ultimately is unto the revelation of Jesus. But some books in particular, are, it's more plain than others. And Isaiah is littered with messianic prophecies. And, uh, and so it's really encouraging. You can see Jesus so clearly. And many of you know Israel ultimately through rebellion went into captivity uh, the northern kingdom to Assyria, the southern kingdom to Judah. Point is this, is they experienced great hardship. They, they, they reaped the fruit of their sin and rebellion. But the good news throughout the gospel is that, that God, God had not left them. God says, there's a day coming when I'm going to restore and redeem, and it hinges on this man, Jesus. So what we're actually about to read is in the midst of such brokenness, God began to prophesy through the prophet Isaiah. He actually uses the word good news, gospel. <laughs> so 700 years prior to Jesus... The gospel was already being declared. It was, they were looking forward to it. And in this one verse, Isaiah 40, verse 9, we see not only the words good news or gospel, but we actually are given the pinnacle of the goodness of the good news. This is what we've been after. What makes the good news so good? So let's read Isaiah 40, verse 9. It says this, verse 9. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. So what that's saying is, herald the gospel to Zion, which is synonymous with God's people. Proclaim it, announce the gospel, announce the good news to Zion. And then it says, lift up your voice with strength. I think it's amazing, 700 years prior to Jesus. And they're saying the gospel's coming, they can see it, here it comes. It says, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. So herald, proclaim, announce the gospel to Jerusalem, which is synonymous with Zion, it all means God's people. Say to the cities of Judah, here is the ultimate end of the gospel. <laughs> Please don't miss this. What are they going to say? Behold your God. <laughs> the ultimate good of the good news is that you and I get to behold God. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We don't even have time to talk about it. This is how we are transformed, 2 Corinthians 3. By beholding the glory of God, we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. The ultimate gift, the greatest good of the gospel, is that you and I can see, not with necessarily literal eyes, although there's visions and things, but see with the eyes of our heart, Paul says, may the eyes of our heart be enlightened to grow in the knowledge of who God is. That, that before this, man could not see the invisible God, but Christ came. And he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So when we read this word, when we worship and pray, and we're encountering Jesus and growing in the knowledge of Jesus, we're beholding God by beholding Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is God, but we're seeing the Father. There's no greater good than this, to see and savor, the God, see and savor God in Jesus Christ. The glory of God, behold your God, the glory of God, is not just synonymous with raw power. So a lot of times we think of glory, what are we beholding, like raw power? It consists of power, but really it speaks of the divine beauty of his manifold perfections. In other words, what we're saying is the greatest gift of the gospel is through the scriptures and through just the Holy Spirit leading us to look upon Jesus with eyes of faith, we get to grow in the knowledge of his multitude of perfections in his personality and his works. Like, he's so beautiful, and we get to look at these things and be fascinated by this man who, honestly, cannot be described even with words. He's, he's, he's inexhaustible, the scriptures say. Jonathan Edwards uh, put it this way. Jonathan Edwards, he wrote a sermon. It was called The, Divine, uh, the Excellency of Christ. Have you guys ever read Jonathan Edwards? <laughs> 
If you haven't, you should. He's unbelievable. <laughs> Outside of the Word of God lately, it, just his, his sermons have so touched me. He has a, a, a message called The Excellency of Christ, and in it his text was Revelation 5, verses 5 and 6, and it all hinged on this one reality, that Jesus is both the lion and the lamb. And what he said was, in short, that these two things are seemingly contradictory. They normally would oppose one another to be a lion or a lamb, but in Christ, he has such manifold perfections that what seems to be uniquely or, or, or clearly contradicting one another, in Christ, they are united to actually intensify his beauty. Is that not amazing? So you're beholding this man who's a lion and a lamb. So to put it this way, we love him because he is king of glory, but why we admire him even more is because he walked with profound humility. We love him because he's committed to justice, but what makes him even more beautiful is not only that he's committed to justice, it's tempered with mercy. We love him because he's, he's full of majesty, but he walked with meekness. We love him because he's co-equal with God, and yet on the earth showed reverence and respect for God the Father. When we're talking about beholding the glory of God, this is the greatest gift, is that we can grow in the knowledge of who God is through Jesus Christ. There's nothing better than this. We, we have literally an entire ministry, the prayer room, is hinges on, we have it in our wall, beholding Jesus. You, can, you will always tell when someone beholds Jesus. It's not just in a corporate setting, but on their own. I say this often. Give me, give me someone who's been 50 years in the Lord who's never learned this. Give me someone who's one year in the Lord who's learned to come away and set their attention on the Lord and grow in the knowledge of Christ and the word, worship, and I promise you this, they will far exceed maturity than the one who is 50 years in the Lord. Because it's not just about stringing together consecutive years of confessing Jesus Lord and Savior. There's something so much deeper he wants to bring us into that we get to, again, set the gaze of our mind, heart, soul on Jesus and in that see the one who dwells in unapproachable light. We get, to, we get to see the one who says streams of fire flow out through the throne room. It's absolutely fascinating we get to look upon Jesus and that by the Spirit of God living within us, he allows us to do this. If, if this doesn't pierce our hearts enough, know this. The greatest longing of the gospel is show me your glory. Do you know that this is the ultimate longing of the gospel? It's the ultimate longing of Israel. So we're saying the ultimate good news is we get to behold the glory of God because this is, was the ultimate longing of God's people. Show me your glory. Do you remember when Moses asked for this? Moses said to the Lord, show me your glory. <laughs> but because of the, the separation between God and man, when God passed by, you remember what it said? He could only show the backside to him. Moses wanted to see the face of God, but it could only see his backside. Not because God was showing literal body parts. It's all imagery because God is spirit. But it's saying Moses had limited access to what he wanted to see. He wanted the face of God, but he could only get the backside. And so what you find is throughout the Old Testament, because there is this gap between God and man, God had to use a mediator to reveal his glory, whether it was Moses the word, creation declares the glory of God. His works declare his glory. Angels, it says, declared the glory of God. But the prophets knew this. There was a day coming when this glorious one would reveal himself in a unique way. And it was the ultimate hope and expectation of Israel. Look at this still in Isaiah 40. Come back just a few verses. Look at verse 3, Isaiah 40. I just want you to see what we have is what Israel longed for. And honestly, Moses' cry, you can say it was bold, but it's not unique. 
Every human person is longing to behold the glory of God, meaning him and all that he is. You may not know it, but that's actually what we were made for, to walk with God like Adam did and to see him. There's so many bored Christians. You know why? Because we're not, he's ultimate fascination. He is pleasures forevermore. And when we see that, actually, that's, we don't have time for this. That's how you get set free from temptation. Because Hebrews says that sin also has pleasure, but it's fleeting. It leaves you more broken. You get liberated from fleeting pleasures by setting your mind and heart on the one whose pleasures forevermore. Look at, so look at Isaiah 40, verse 3, right before what I just read. This is the prophecy regarding John the Baptist. So when you read the scriptures about John, it points back to this. It says this about John. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. So he's preparing the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. And the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Stop right there. So what's John doing? It's all imagery. John is going to remove every obstacle for the Lord. Who did John set the stage for? Jesus. Now look at verse 5. Here's the Lord coming. What does it say about him? And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. The ache of the gospel, show me your glory. And what this says is that when John cleared the way for the one to come after him, it was the glory of the Lord revealed to man. Isaiah 60 says it also. It says God's people were in darkness and light was coming to shine on them. And it says the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. I want you to know that the day that Israel longed for dawned upon us when Jesus came on the scene. He is the glory of God revealed for all flesh to see. <laughs> John 1.14 says the word meaning Jesus became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us. And then John says, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only son from the father. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus would tell his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. So all of humanity's longing, show me your glory. There's been mediators leading up to one man who would show the glory of God in a way we've never seen. Are we enjoying looking upon this man, <laughs> seeing and savoring all that he is? Sadly, scriptures reveal that many saw Jesus without really seeing him. <laughs> Think about that. The glory of God came, and many, when they looked on him, not only did they not see it, but they said he's a drunkard, they said he's a glutton. Can you imagine this? The one who is the radiance of the Father walks on the scene, and they say he's a glutton, he's a drunkard. Some even said he's driven by demons. He's the prince of demons. Some said he's an imposter and a false teacher. Why? Because we cannot see God without being born again. That's the hope right now, that every person here, God wants to show you his glory, but you can't, it's not about, the, the issue is not physical seeing. There's a, there, there's a gap in the spirit. There's a moral issue. And one must be born again to see the glory of God. The unregenerated heart is consumed with self. <laughs> we need God to shine lights in hearts this morning. <laughs> we need God, even if we've been walking with the Lord, God wants to shine light and reveal the glory of God. That's, that's what, there's going to be one more verse that's going to just bring this thing together in 2 Corinthians. The light of the glory of the gospel. <laughs> He's going he's gonna to open up light this morning for us to really see the glory of God that's found in this. Amen? Amen. It's what he wants to do. Um, 
Before I share that last text, I want to say one other thing in this. That the ultimate good of the good news, it says, behold your God. Again, I want to just break down some of the things we may have thought was the ultimate good. So again, don't beat me up here. <laughs> um, but I can tell you this was kind of where my theology was early on in my walk. Let me put it this way. I, I think our culture raised us to say soul health and happiness hinges on being made much of. If I want to have soul health, if I want to have peace, I want to have joy, if I want to be happy, I need someone to make much of me. If you really love me, then your love will be expressed by showing how much or how good I am, right? The problem with this is that a lot of times we say the ultimate good of the good news is that I am now understanding how valued I am before God. The ultimate good news is that I'm so loved by God. Now, I want to be abundantly clear. We have to preach on that. That sets people free, and it is so true. God died for you. But if you stop with saying the ultimate good of the good news is now that I have improved self-esteem, you are missing the ultimate good of it. And many stop by saying, wow, I now know what God has died for me. I mean that much, which is so true. But it has not led them into the ultimate thing, which is to actually get their eyes off themselves and their eyes on Jesus. So I'll prove it to you that your soul health is not contingent on improved self-esteem. <laughs> how many of us, how many of us have, actually everyone has been to a natural wonder in some sense. I know every single person here has been to the Grand Canyon. You've looked at a waterfall. You've stood on the brink of the oceans with the waves crashing in. You've seen a glorious sunrise. Put whatever thing you want there. You've climbed a mountaintop to look out and just all you see is a whole city or whatever it may be. I know each and every one of us, when we've looked upon what we're looking at, that there was a deep sense of peace, joy, pleasure, like excitement, awe, when we look upon this cascading waters of a waterfall. And you know what's interesting? No one goes to the Grand Canyon or the Alps to improve their self-esteem. And yet, you feel incredibly happy, joyful, pleasure, because you're not beholding a greater self, you're beholding a greater splendor. This is what the gospel does. God says the greatest gift I've given you is not just letting you know that you're loved, you are. The greatest gift is you can now look upon, you can look upon the one who created the sunrise. You can look upon the one who created the waterfall. You can behold this glory. This is what changes a person. Yes? <laughs> This is the ultimate good. God is the greatest gift. It is a God-centered gospel. This is what it means when the gospel says, God says in Isaiah, I've blotted out your sins for my name's sake. You say, ah, oh, man, I, I wanted it to be for my name's sake. But God says, actually, the best thing I can do, when he says for my name's sake, he's saying, I did it for my glory. But the best thing God can do is, is reveal his glory because we are most satisfied, John Piper says, when he is most glorified which means actually he's most loving to us when he does things for his own glory because when we see it, we are most satisfied. This is the good news of the gospel, God being glorified. And forever he will become our highest treasure. We can see and savor and enjoy him for all of eternity. <laughs> John Piper says it this way, the saving love of God is God's commitment to do everything necessary to enthrall us with what is most deeply and durably satisfying Namely, himself. <laughs> that is glorious news. <laughs> All right, last text. We'll close here. Second Corinthians. Mark, you got me? Thanks, bro. 
2 Corinthians chapter 4. Are you guys tracking with me? (laughs) Okay. So this will kind of be the exclamation point here. And then um, for those who want to pray, we'll pray for anyone who would like to. But I think this is going to really uh, help just bring this home of what God is doing right now this morning. What we're about to read in 2 Corinthians 4 is essentially Paul is going to unfold the meaning of Isaiah's gospel command, Behold your God. This is Paul's way of describing it. It's the same exact thing. This is the ultimate goal of the gospel is to behold the glory of God found in the face of Jesus, as Paul will say. And what we're going to read is verses 4 through 6. And I won't spend much time at all, but I want you to understand that the highlight of this for today is verse 4 and verse 6. And the reason why is verse 4 and verse 6 are, are standing in contrast with one another. For here's what's happening right now. Verse 4 says that there is truly an adversary to your life, and his name is Satan. And his goal is to blind the minds of people so that they would not see the light of the glory of the gospel that is found in Jesus Christ. So right now what's happening is he doesn't want you to see the glory of God. But the good news is verse 6 says that God is countering that, and it is no battle for God, and God's saying, let there be light. Let there be light. As the gospel is being preached, God's saying, let there be light. And hearts are being opened up. And I want you to see what's happening here. Verse verse 4. Here's what the enemy is trying to do. It says, in their case, the God of this world, that's a, a phrase for Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. He doesn't want you to see. He doesn't want you to behold. What? What does he not want you to see? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So what he doesn't want you to see is he wants to blind you from the light that comes forth in the gospel message. Uh, Just hang with me. Now look at, we'll read verse 5, but I want to get to verse 6. Verse 5 says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now here's what God's doing when the gospel goes forth. Verse 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So here's what's happening, and here's what's happening today. This is what we're going to pray against. (laughs) Is that this says Satan has a strategy to silence the gospel. Interesting what it says is what he's not doing is silencing preaching. Now, there are times where I'm sure he doesn't want someone to preach the gospel at all, but this is very important because we can think if the gospel goes forth, the victory is won. Uh Uh-uh. This is not saying that he's silencing preaching. What he's silencing is seeing. Let the gospel be preached. Let the facts be understood and even comprehended. What I do not want them to see is the beauty of this man, Jesus. What I do not want to see is how precious he is. What I do not want to see is that he is supreme treasure. I do not want the events that actually happen to be able to connect and come alive and then begin to see the God of glory dying on their behalf. And what that means where it becomes light begins to emit and they begin to see his glory. He says, that's what I don't want them to see. Let them hear. Go ahead. Hear the facts. Come to the logical conclusion. I guess he's really the Messiah. But God wants to bring you into a deeper seeing. Can Can I illustrate this way? Here's the seeing Satan's okay with. He's okay. It would be like this. 
going into a grocery store, walking down an aisle, and you see a bottle of this brown, gooey-like liquid, and on it, it has a, a bee on it. And we say, ha, huh, it must be honey. <laughs> We've come to logical conclusion based on the facts that it must be honey. Actually, Satan's okay with that type of seeing. You know what the seeing God wants to bring you into? He wants to take that bottle, he wants to open it up, and then he wants to pour it onto your mouth, and he wants you to taste the sweetness of it so that there's an immediate knowledge that this must be honey because I've tasted the sweetness. There is a radical difference between coming to the rational judgment that honey is sweet versus actually tasting the sweetness. The gospel is not about persuading blind men that there's really a light. The gospel is God opening blind eyes and seeing the light. They're not being persuaded the whole heaven saying, well, someone told me, I guess it's got to be true. No. If God, once God shines light, listen, there's no man, it's it. He's wrecked. <laughs> the reason why man rejects the gospel is the light hasn't come on yet. Because if the right light comes on, he will come after this Jesus. So here's what verse 6 says. Let's read it again, what God's doing. Here's what he's going to do this morning. <laughs> Satan seeks the blind minds. He doesn't want you to see. He doesn't want you to taste. But God says this, verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. You know what Paul's playing off of? He's drawing from Genesis language. He's, Genesis, he's drawing from original creation. And he's saying in the same way, when, when the earth was, had darkness and was unformed, and God went, let there be light. And all of a sudden, light came upon darkness and this unformed earth. In the same way, Paul says, when the gospel's being preached, God is coming up to hearts and saying, let there be light. And hearts that are bound in darkness... And that are troubled by unbelief, all of a sudden the light shines into the darkness of their heart. All of a sudden the power of Satan's darkness is broken off of them. Faith is awakened. Forgiveness of sins is released. And now the beginning process of sanctification takes place. So we're asking this morning is not just have you heard a gospel and do you believe the facts. But what, we're, what I'm contending for is let light shine in hearts. Amen. And listen, this is not just, if you don't know the Lord, then let's, we're going to pray for that. We're going to pray that you're actually going to have a moment where you say, oh, my goodness, I was blind and now I see. <laughs> but I want to pray also, if, if you feel led, I believe we need to pray also for believers because we stand in the same gospel. And, and maybe, maybe we've just drifted uh, just from the, the ultimate good of the good news. Maybe we've just lost sight of him and it just hearts are dulled. We need to be reawakened with having the heart burst forth and see. Just pray for radical touches by the Holy Spirit this morning. Is that all right? All right, let me pray for us, and then we're going to open the altar up, okay? Why don't you stand with me?